Hi, everybody. I'm Nick Forster, host of the long-running radio program E-Town. I want to welcome you to Purple State. Purple State is an experiment or an exploration, really, in which we're trying to understand the root causes of what's dividing us as an American society and to find a path out of that contentious political environment we find ourselves in today. Purple State kicked off with episode one, We the Purple, which was a great conversation between a really interesting panel of folks from different professional backgrounds and experiences. They brought some thoughtful, provocative ideas to understanding the current divided state of affairs in American politics and civil society. And one of the key takeaways from that conversation is that regardless of our ideologies, we all have different assumptions that underlie our worldviews and our versions of reality and what we think of as being true or false. So the subject of truth versus fiction is an increasingly controversial one in American political discourse. And in this episode of Purple State, we're going to explore how truth is formed, what it means for us as individuals and for our democracy and society, if our ideas about truth continue to grow farther apart. So to help us navigate this topic, Purple State has invited Jennifer Kavanaugh, Jennifer is a PhD political scientist from the RAND Corporation. She's an associate director of RAND's strategy, doctrine, and resource program in the Arroyo Center. Her research focuses on U.S. political institutions and public opinion and their implications for domestic and foreign policy. She's co-author on a RAND research project entitled Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life, which, aside from having a great title, is a great examination of how people's perceptions and opinions have become increasingly subjective. So, Jennifer Cavanaugh, welcome to Purple State. Thanks for having me. So, first, could you give us a little background on RAND Corporation? I think most of us have heard of it. A lot of people don't know much about it. What is it? RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization that was established almost 70 years ago. RAND's mission is to inform policymakers with research and analysis and to develop solutions to really tough public policy problems. And so we tackle some of the most challenging issues and we also really strive to inform the public. RAND publishes over a thousand research products a year on topics ranging from childhood education to uh, military strategy. It's so funny because on the one hand, you know, what you've been doing is nothing but analysis, research, presentation. It's fact-based, and one would think that there would be an inherent trust in the results of your research. Um, I think that part of the disconnect or, or part of the challenge that we face currently in establishing a common set of facts, part of it is a lack of understanding and a lack of communication, and that occurs on both sides. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both the people who are receiving that information, who may not always have an open mind or a willingness to change and explore new ideas, and people who are doing the communicating, who aren't communicating in a way that is accessible and uh, relevant to the people who they're trying to convince. And that's often the case for the scientific community, where they're not great communicators, but doesn't in any way affect the, the research or the fact that their scientific research evolves based on evidence and based on discovery. And so, of course, things do change, which can, I guess, be unsettling for people, right? Right, exactly. And I think scientists are used to communicating with other scientists. Right. And so they speak in technical terms. But I think there's a line between being appropriately skeptical and being cynical. And I think skepticism is good. Um, Cynicism creates challenges that we see today in terms of people 
being unwilling to accept facts, even where the data is overwhelming. Well, tell us a little bit about your research, because I'm particularly interested in, in the way that now people can choose their own sources of information in the digital age that can support even some bold misconceptions. So we define truth decay as comprising four specific trends. The first is an increasing disagreement about facts and data. The second is a blurring of the line between fact and opinion, which you can see on social media or cable news. Right. The third is this overwhelming volume of opinion and commentary that's available and the extent to which that drowns out facts. Uh, we have so much information available that that can create a lot of noise that makes it difficult to find objective information and declining trust in institutions. The extent to which people struggle to find institutions that they can turn to, that they trust for factual mm -hmm. information. Are there times, Jennifer, for example, we think about the Watergate era as a time when a lot of people lost confidence in government, but at the time there was still trust and confidence in media. Is that erosion of trust in media? And as you say, um, people don't have that reliance on a single source that they can trust. Is there an event that sort of caused that to decline? In terms of looking at the current era, we think that this process, this erosion of trust in facts and data, really has occurred over the past two decades. Uh, our research suggests that it's a confluence of different factors, different drivers, different changes that have led us to this point. Mm -hmm. If we look back at U.S. history, we can find previous eras where we've seen similar phenomena. We see that shift with Watergate and the Pentagon Papers and the extent to which media and investigative journalism really was working to get the facts out. But in the late 60s, trust in the media wasn't all that high. Yeah. I think about issues like climate change as being a great example of an issue that people are either on one side or the other, regardless of empirical evidence. Are there others that are like that, that people just simply choose to believe a certain set of facts that may not be backed up by scientific evidence? Yeah, I do think there are a number of examples. I mean, the climate change is one. Another example would be the safety of GMOs. In the early 2000s, around 22% pretty consistently believe that GMOs are not safe to consume. And in 2015, 57% of Americans believed that GMOs were not safe to consume, even though we have more evidence now than in the early 2000s that they are safe to consume. Mm -hmm. It's not just that people are skeptical of facts, because we certainly have seen skepticism throughout American history. What we see is this divergence between the amount of data and evidence that we have and what we would expect to have happen to people's beliefs about these scientific principles, what we actually see, which is a divergence between trust and evidence. This is not new. There's been wild, exaggerated claims on every side of every political debate for centuries. And so right. this is not a new phenomenon, but it seems pervasive and it seems corrosive in a new way, at least to, mm -hmm. the, to, to us on the outside. Does your research mm -hmm. support that? Well, I do think that there are certain changes, certain trends that we have observed and that we have evidence of that make this period different than previous ones. First, it's really easy to find information on almost everything, and that can have a number of effects. Number one, it can mean that you only look for information that confirms what you believe, so a confirmation bias. It also means that there are a wider array of different opinions without good markers of what's sort of high-quality information versus lower-quality information. Mm -hmm. And it also means that almost anyone can feel like an expert. You can go Google something, spend an hour looking at different information and feel like you know everything that you need to know. When in reality, that's probably not the case. 
Yeah, a lot of people go to the doctor's office armed with their diagnosis and their treatment already because they went on the internet. Exactly. And I mean, certainly there's a lot of good medical information online and that can be really helpful, but there's a reason why you have to go to medical school to become a doctor. Right. (laughs) So I think that the ability to find almost anything is both a really powerful and important thing. We live in a democracy. We should want democratized access to information, but it has a lot of unintended consequences that I think contribute to what we're seeing now and our reasons why what we're seeing now is so different. I'm speaking with Jennifer Cavanaugh, political scientist and researcher with the RAND Corporation. A few minutes ago, she mentioned the term confirmation bias. That is only looking for information that confirms what you already believe. So we've shared some interesting resources on that subject on our website, purplestate.org, including a tool that tracks the spread of misinformation. Back to Jennifer now. I was curious as to what she thinks we should do to balance having access to so much information, which is good with the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, which lends itself to people being misinformed. She says that's the real challenge. How do we manage this new media ecosystem in a way that both protects freedom of expression and protects the diversity and protects the access, which we like, but also gives signals to information consumers about information quality that gives people the skills and tools they need to navigate this more complex information environment Mm -hmm. and that also properly signals levels of certainty so that people can judge, okay, this is an area where certainty is high and I can have trust in this information. And this is an area where certainty is low and my skepticism is appropriate. And of course, this is so interesting because um, as you may know, Jennifer's dad is Judge Kavanaugh. I'm just putting out some information, right? It's okay. Okay, so he, <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely not my father. <laughs> no relation at all. <laughs> I know. Even spells his name differently. Than I me. <laughs> know. I'm just uh, I'm just showing how easy it is. It is. It's incredibly easy to spread disinformation. And the problem is that once that information gets out, and once people believe that that's the case, it can be difficult to change their mind. It's not impossible, but even retracted information that's once it gets out there it's got a long um, shelf life doesn't it it has a long shelf life and and there's research that suggests that even once it's retracted and even once people have heard the retraction and even believed that the original information was false that first set of information that they heard continues to influence how they make decisions so it's really hard to undo that i wonder if there's any universe in which there could be some accountability in other words can there be consequences i mean is there a possibility of people getting a factual rating as a candidate or as a public servant? Sure. Uh, In terms of political figures, you do have organizations like PolitiFact, which do rate the accuracy of statements made by politicians. But one of the observations that we made during the research for our report is that in the political arena, there aren't always consequences for using or relying on information that is not Mm fact-based. Voters seem willing to tolerate decision-making or rhetorical flourish that includes information other than facts. That's so delicately put, by the way. I have to compliment you, Jennifer. That was well said. Rhetorical <laughs> flourish. That's a, that's a good one. I mean, I think, I think people thus far, they have been willing to tolerate political figures who make decisions often without facts, who make statements that are not based on facts, and they don't seem to punish these political figures for this. As shareholders would punish a business organization 
or as fans would punish a sports team that didn't use data to make their decisions. So it's a real disconnect that we don't see that same kind of accountability in the political sphere, at least so far. Yeah, that's really interesting because it ends up being almost more of an ideological alignment with the mythology of a particular elected official. It's more mythology than it is real-world engagement. Yeah, I, I mean, I think ideology plays a big role. What we see in the political sphere now is people being willing across the political spectrum to put aside a lot in order to stay true to an ideology. And part of that is cognitive bias. We like to have some kind of consistency. We like to think that we make decisions on you know, consistent principles. What makes you nervous about this? Right now, when you look at this trend, how bad do you think this can get? And what makes you nervous about this particular chapter of truth decay? Our research suggests that it's not going to get better unless people take action. It's just going to keep getting worse. Right. And there are things that fundamentally undermine the health and vitality of democracy. Things like the erosion of civil discourse, the inability to have meaningful conversations with people who you disagree with. Those are the types of conversations that should be the foundation of democracy. That's sort of the basis of a marketplace of ideas is that we can share ideas, we can discuss them in a meaningful and productive way without attacking each other personally. We see it in the political dysfunction that we have in Washington, Mm -hmm. the inability of our policymakers to make progress on any of the important issues that are facing us, things like immigration and healthcare, budgets, national security. Right. These are fundamental issues that affect the long-term development of the country. There has been very little progress, partly, we argue, because policymakers can't agree on a common set of facts. So instead of having debates about how to weigh different priorities and how to achieve different objectives, what we have is uh, debates about what the facts are. And that prevents a serious discussion about policy options. It prevents reaching compromise. It prevents progress on these really important issues. If you look back at the times when our country has made progress on big issues, It hasn't happened in two years or four years or even six years. It happens over several decades, several administrations building on each other. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see how that happens in the current environment. The ultimate political consequence comes from the voters, though. In the current, the way our institutions are set up, it has to be the voters that hold those politicians accountable. One of the things that we've seen is that truth decay appears to erode some civic engagement among some groups of people. Instead of feeling engaged and enthusiastic, they kind of check out because they don't know who to trust. They feel disillusioned by the dysfunction. You know, that has to change. Yes. People have to be willing to hold their policymakers accountable. In the absence of some kind of institutional change that imposes consequences for politicians, which I think is not going to happen, it has to come from the voters. Jennifer, thanks so much. You've been great. Really enjoyed this conversation. Congratulations again on your research paper called Truth Decay an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. And uh, good luck with your continuing research over at RAND, and thanks so much for being with us on Purple State. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with you. We've been talking about the subject of truth and how each of us forms our definition of what is true and what is not. In our next podcast episode, we'll explore that from a somewhat different perspective with an expert who studies how we might be able to present differing views in ways that other people can actually hear. 
At least for me, the bottom line is just trying to connect with people on a basis that's just human being to human being, to communicate with that person about what I've learned about the world and what they might take away from that if they want to be so engaged. I'm Nick Forster. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our Purple State contributors and crew, including Todd Ayers, Vanessa Mazal, Nick Hazel, Helen Forster, and Allie Lightfoot. 